Hello, and thanks so much for tuning in to another very special episode of Works in Theory podcast. I'm your co-host, Alicia, and this week I missed out, but Tom and Nate met up with Pearson of Coffee with Comrades to chat about one of David Graeber's fine essays. I'll skip the details because they do a great job of bringing you into their conversation, if I do say so myself. Here goes. Here's Nate and Tom's crossover with yet another just stellar Channel Zero Network show, Coffee with Comrades. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Coffee with Comrades, a podcast discussing current events, theory, and action through a radical lens. What's good, y'all? Pearson here, back at it again with episode 149 of Coffee with Comrades. I'm really psyched about this one. Recently, I sat down with Nate and Tom, two of the co-hosts of Works in Theory podcast, to commemorate the passing of David Graeber. Together, we read through my favorite Graeber essay, What's the Point If We Can't Have Fun?, and discussed everything from anthropocentrism to economics to joy and the jubilee of play. The conversation was a blast. I absolutely loved hanging out with Nate and Tom. Works in Theory is a lovely program, and if you haven't already done so, you should definitely check it out. I sincerely hope that you'll enjoy listening to this conversation. But first, I do have a couple quick announcements I would like to get through first. As some of you may already know, Works in Theory is one of our sister shows on the Channel Zero Network. Check out this jingle to find out a little bit more about the CZN. You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts, bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Salagi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to channelzeronetwork.com to find out more. Coffee with Comrades is coming up on our 150th episode next week. To celebrate, we've been soliciting questions from listeners just like you for a Q&A episode. So get your questions in as soon as possible so we can answer them on the program next week. I think... I'll probably record everything on Friday, which I believe is the the 9th, I think. I am terrible and don't have my calendar pulled up in front of me, so get them in by Friday of this week. We also recently announced the October selection of our monthly Coffee with Comrades book club, where we read a work of fiction through a leftist lens. And this month, we are discussing Margaret Kiljoy's wonderful little novella, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion. 
What's more, Margaret is actually going to be joining us for the discussion. It's going to be a real awesome time. I love and admire Margaret, and I really appreciate the work that she's done on Live Like the World is Dying, another wonderful program on Channel Zero Network that you should absolutely check out if you haven't done so already. She talks about prepping from kind of like a leftist perspective. It's super great. Plus, all of her fiction is fucking awesome. Our October book club session will be meeting on Tuesday, October the 26th from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're also going to be streaming a couple of horror movies later this month with the comrades in our Discord community to mark the most scary month of the year. We'll hang out, pop some popcorn, and stream a few terrifying flicks together. Should be an awesome time. If any of this sounds interesting to you, I'd encourage you to consider signing up to support Coffee with Comrades by going to www.patreon.com forward slash coffee with comrades. For just a dollar a month, you can unlock a whole slew of sweet perks. Access to our Discord community, membership in our book club, early access to our weekly episodes, behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, and a whole lot more. All of that for just a dollar a month. And if you're feeling especially generous, we also offer access to our digital library of zines on Patreon at the $5 a month level. Our latest issue of Cold Brew Chronicles will actually be dropping later on this month. Longtime listeners of Coffee with Comrades know this is a podcast that is DIY, it is a labor of love, and independent leftist media is kept afloat by the generosity and the solidarity of listeners just like you. We are endlessly, unspeakably grateful for all of the lovely folks who continue to support this show month after month after month on Patreon and help ensure that Coffee with Comrades continues to thrive and grow. But we also understand that a lot of folks who flock to leftist media aren't exactly flush with cash. If you dig this show and want to support our work but can't sign up to be a Patreon supporter, that is totally cool. The good news is there are a whole bunch of ways that you can support this program. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram, retweet, like, and share new episode announcements when they get posted every Tuesday. Leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you go to listen to your favorite leftist propaganda. But most importantly... Tell your friends and comrades about this show. We don't pay to advertise Coffee with Comrades, and we don't accept advertisements from third parties, so word of mouth is really the only way a show like ours grows. Okay, I think that is about it. Episode 150 is going to be a real big deal. We've got a whole bunch of cool stuff planned, and I cannot wait to share it all with you. But for now, pour yourself a cup of coffee, kick back, relax, and enjoy episode 149 of Coffee with Comrades, What's the Point if We Can't Have Fun? Featuring Works in Theory. Just 
So FYI, I started cooking a thing in the oven and it's going to be ready in like 15 minutes. So I'll need to take like a two minute break or like a 30 second break probably when, when that timer goes off. I not, wasn't, I didn't. Not allowed. That's, yeah. that's ridiculous. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to have to let it burn. John, draw the line. We are recording a podcast <laughs> that has to come first. Your meal is going to turn to ash uh, and you will not enjoy it. The house might start on fire, in fact, which would be. Quite a big, quite a big uh, thing to, to lose for the podcast, but I'm willing to do it. <laughs> well, yeah, and then the sirens might interfere with the recording. Sacrifices <laughs> must be made. You got, you know, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break a couple of eggs. I don't make the rules. That's just that's an axiom that I've heard said before to justify things as mundane as making omelets and as horrific as uh, genocide. So uh, it has to be yeah. right and voracious. So yeah, sense. they wouldn't use it so wide widespread if it if it wasn't true. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's. I mean, listen, it's a fact. All right, fuck yeah. Well, uh, today we have a very special collaborative edition of Coffee with Comrades and Works in Theory podcast. We're sitting down with two thirds of Works in Theory podcast for a, uh, a a double feature collaboration that we've done with a lot of the shows on the Channel Zero Network, and super excited about it. Um, what's good, y'all? How, how, how's, how, how's it going? It's going well, Jason. Thank you for asking. Um, actually, today is my birthday, so I've what? been enjoying myself. Dude, yeah. that's so great. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, so I'm not going to work, which means it's a good day. Yes, fuck work. Yeah. Uh, I, that is so appropriate for, for, for today in so many ways and what we're going to be talking about. Happy fucking birthday. That's awesome. I, I feel so delighted and honored that i get to be part of your birthday in some small way recording this this silly little podcast that rules oh yeah absolutely there's nothing i'd rather be doing than um you know exerting my capacities just for the fun of it (laughs) that's what the fuck's up um so for folks who haven't heard of of works in theory before um and who are listening to this in the coffee with comrades feed would y'all like care to introduce yourselves and like works in theory generally and then maybe i can do the same for coffee with comrades um, yeah, so I'm Nate, uh, and my co-host is Tom that's with us today, and then Alicia, uh, who wasn't able to make it, and we host uh, Works in Theory podcast, which the, the quick tagline we have for is, uh, we read theory so you don't have to. <laughs> uh, basically, we just uh, we like to read through books of uh, leftist, mostly anarchist theory, and then just sort of have like casual conversations about them, sort of like uh, we're planning on doing today. Uh, just to break it down for people who are interested in, you know, what uh, what left theory says, but are honestly never going to take the time to sit down and, and read 300 pages of it. Wait, I was told that anarchists don't actually read theory. Is that not true? 
<laughs> well, that's actually the point of our podcast is so they don't have to. <laughs> ah, I see. It makes sense. It all makes sense yeah. now. It's all, it's all they're, they're, Yeah, we're taking one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> still not going to. <laughs> You're just going to listen to this podcast instead. That's awesome. And then you all are, of course, uh, joined by your lovely co-host, Alicia, as well. Oh, that's normally. Right. Yeah. Normally, yes, yes. Normally. Unfortunately, time, times and schedules couldn't you know, collapse and crystallize. Um, but that's, that's life. Uh, and, and that's totally fine. Um, for folks who are, are listening to this in the, uh, works in theory, um, stream Cuff with comrades is a podcast, um, as well, or we're a sister show on the channel zero network. Um, basically, uh, the way I explain it is, uh, Cuff with comrades is kind of like walking into, hopefully, hopefully simulates like walking into your favorite coffee shop and overhearing your friends talking and then sitting down and listening to them and being able to enjoy the conversation. That's what I hope it is. Uh, but it's ma- mostly just an excuse for me to, you know, hang out and bullshit with cool people like Nate and Tom. So that's how it turns out. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I've been a fan of Coffee with Comrades for a long time. So if you're listening to this on our feed and you haven't heard of Coffee with Comrades, uh, definitely couldn't uh, recommend it more highly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, let's 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 kind of dive into this together, y'all. I I mean, we were going to try and and put this uh, episode together for for September, but life, as we've said multiple times already, has has gotten in the way, has conspired against us. Um, we wanted to try and put this together for the um, one year anniversary of David Graeber's death, and and wanted to try and kind of. Um, do a sort of memorial episode uh, for his work and his contributions to anarchist philosophy and praxis. Um, but if you've been like living under a rock and you don't know who David Graeber is, um, would y'all care to explain who who David Graeber is for for our listeners who may not have ever heard of this dude? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, he was an anthropologist and an anarchist activist. He was a, uh, a professor. And he wrote a lot of really cool books, like The Utopia of Rules, Bullshit Jobs, Death, The First 5,000 Years. Um, he actually had a, a book that's coming out in uh, a month, I guess, in November, uh, that he was co-authoring with David Wingrow, called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Um, but he passed away, uh, Graeber passed away in September of, of 2020 before the book was finished but it looks like it's still going to be released so i'm very excited about that me too i just saw um our friends in seriously wrong did a um a a collaboration with graber's co-author for that book and i'm really excited for that i'm really excited for the book my partner actually literally just pre-ordered that book yesterday which is awesome yeah absolutely it should be really good i've had that on pre-order for (laughs) as basically as soon as they put it up i was like man you got to get me this book I hadn't even heard of it until yesterday, if I'm being perfectly honest. But I'm I'm excited that there's going to be like a a posthumous uh, book published um, that had David Graeber's hands on it because like literally everything this man touched was just so good. Um, and speaking of that, we're going to to talk about one of those things today, and and sort of the spirits of uh, of Works in Theory podcast. We're going to look at a little essay that Graeber penned called What's the Point If We Can't Have Fun, which was published way back in January of 2014 in a magazine called The Baffler. Um, and and this essay is super approachable. I know that we joked at the top of the episode that like 
you know, works in theory is all about doing the hard work so you don't have to, but like anyone can read and, and enjoy this essay because A, it's super short. B, Graber writes brilliantly and, and has just such a fun, playful, um, conversational style. Uh, so it's like super approachable. So like if you haven't read this essay before, and want to go in to this conversation with us knowing a little bit more about what he's said and, and kind of um, what this essay is all about. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's probably my favorite like essay written by David Graeber, and I've read almost all of his work. Uh, so that's like a high a high bar because it's all really good, <laughs> and this is arguably his best in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely, and it's not very long, so you know. It- and just to echo what you said, Pearson, Grave is just such a uh, approachable writer. Um, you just, you sail through it. You know, yeah. it, it's a really good piece. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Well, where do y'all want to begin? I mean, there's a whole, like, there's a, there's so much stuff that we could potentially get into here. Um, and and our, our notes go on for, like, three or four pages. So, like, we may not be able to get to all of it. But it's like, there's such, like, such fertile ground for discussion. So, like, where do y'all want to start? Yeah, um, I guess the place to start is the beginning. Um, like, so to, to frame this essay, uh, Graber is talking about uh, him and his friend. Um, I don't have her name in front of me. Um, watching a inchworm uh, just sort of move itself around on top of a blade of grass, and considering what the inchworm is doing and whether it's just playing. And he he uses this as a jumping off point to sort of talk about the idea of play uh, among animals, which is not something that uh, your average uh, ethologist or animal behavior specialist considers legitimate. You know, I think uh, listeners will probably be somewhat familiar with the idea that Western science, uh, it really takes everything in a sort of uh, neo-Darwinian survival of the fittest maximize utility sort of mindset very cold very rational very empirical exactly um and anything that falls outside that is sort of considered illegitimate per se right it's like it's not just that uh they don't believe animal like that a particular animal is capable of play they just don't believe that the category of play really like even exists ontologically that right everything necessarily has to have some sort of utilitarian function which is kind of like mind-boggling in some ways that that has become such a ubiquitous mindset that like to the exclusion of all other reasons for like why you know organisms can 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 manifest certain behaviors like it's wild to me that it, it all has to be subsumed by and subservient to some sort of utilitarian impulse um that that forces people who subscribe to that ideological perspective to contort themselves into all sorts of like mental gymnastics in order to justify it's it's a it's a kind of a ludicrous and 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 wild thing and yet like at the same time graber i think rightly points out how scandalous it is to suggest that you know non-human animals could play just for the sake of playing for the sheer euphoric joy of the experience of playing and then that 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 idea is is one that's like profoundly scandalous uh to this very kind of masculinous uh rational empirical form of of scientific thinking that has to like you know see that like you said nate this this kind of neo neo darwinian through line to all uh, animal behavior 
Yeah, definitely. And like, I, I feel like it's kind of like a, I, I don't know, like a circle, circular kind of a thing, right? Where it's like, well, capitalism require us, requires us to work 40 hours a week. So we need to make sure that evolution says that that's what we're meant to do. Right. That, that's like, <laughs> that we, we are supposed to be nonstop working because that's, there's no room for playing. And so therefore we're doing the right thing and therefore capitalism is the right thing. And therefore we should keep capital. Like it's a very circular way of looking at it that just cuts out any, like anything that you can't measure or determine why is happening. then it just becomes like, well, it must be for reason. I don't know. Yeah. It must be for this abstract reason that I can't quite give you, but it's there. It has to be there. It couldn't be this much simpler, more obvious like explanation. It has to be something else that is I'm, I'm currently unable and incapable of defining, but will reveal itself in time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that you're onto something there, Tom, when you talked about, um, just the sort of capitalistic mindset and uh, Graber touches on this in the essay. Uh, and we've also talked about it uh, in our show when we reviewed Kropotkin's mutual aid, but uh, this, this idea of like survival of the fittest and like maximizing reproductive success. Uh, like when, when Darwin was developing this theory, it's not like he developed this and then capitalists applied it to capitalism. It was like Darwin had these ideas um, from uh, Spencer, I believe. You know, like the, the idea of survival of the fittest was developed as a social idea first. And then Darwin, who already had that in his head, uh, just saw what, you know, the nature he was seeing, he saw through that lens. So it's not even just that we're trying to make some sort of claim here that, uh, I don't know, the world doesn't work this way and that like capitalists are nefariously trying to twist it, twist it so that it does. It's like literally this idea started among capitalists and was then applied to biology. Right. Yeah, like it began, it has its origins and its, its, its like social ramifications. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I think that a lot of people um, who might listen to this episode might, um, you know, direct that same critique to, to this essay, um, right? Like they might say, oh, well, you know, you're just, you're a bunch of an filthy anarchic, anarchists who are trying to kind of prove that, you know, the, the, the entire animal kingdom works the way that you want it to. And I don't think that's the purpose of this essay, right? It's not trying to fit it to some sort of mold. It's, it's trying to do a, a much more gentle, I think, a much more humble thing of simply asking why are we putting so much stock in um, these, these, these neo-Darwinian forms of, uh, of social and um, – uh, behavioral activity when in reality it could be just as simple as like the sheer joy of playing animates all living things right and and like even down to like the molecular level um i think that if we were to summarize just since we are kind of like opening this conversation still i think you know just to summarize uh the the the, the real thesis of graber's essay here is is thus um where he writes quote why do animals play? Well, why shouldn't they? The real question is, why does the existence of action carried out for the sheer pleasure of acting, the exertion of powers for the sheer pleasure of exerting them, strike us as mysterious? 
What does it tell us about ourselves that we instinctively assume that it is? Right. I think this is a really in, in, in crucial ingredient to uh, Graeber's analysis here, which is to, to invite us to really think and consider why is it so out of the pale or, or so beyond our, our reckon, reckoning that people could engage in something just because they enjoy it, that other animals could in, engage in something just because they enjoy it, and that all of life acts out of this spontaneous desire to be free and to, um, to, to exert it, it itself for the, the joy of that exertion. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think that uh, what you said a moment ago uh, was, was a good insight that what Graeber is trying to do here is mostly just challenge the previous view, which says that like at the bottom of everything is utility. Um, and, and like the idea that what drives nature is competition and utility is like a first principle, right? It's like, that is like, they don't, they being Western scientists don't feel like they need to provide a reason for that. Like that's just the bottom principle. And what Graeber's trying to say is that the, that bottom principle, uh, which doesn't require any further explanation could just as easily be something else such as play. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I have a question for y'all. Did, uh, did all of the damn lobster talk make you think of Jordan Peterson too, or was it just me? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I was shocked, actually. He didn't mention him by name. Well, I, kept I feel like it, it might have been before, like, Peterson really became popular. Because, like, if I rem- recall correctly, Jordan Peterson didn't really begin to explode in the popular imaginary until after the, the Trump election. And so this was written two years before that. So I think maybe that might be, be the reason why. Let me let me actually double-check that, because I don't know remember when 12 Rules for What was actually published. So I'm going to look it up. Um, but yeah, I thought it was hilarious. I was like, fucking fuck off Jordan Peterson. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It looks like 12 rules for life was published in 2018. So this was published four years before, um, his, his famous diatribe about, about lobsters in that book. Um, but there, this, this funny quote that Graeber writes, um, he says, Lobsters have a very bad reputation among philosophers who frequently hold them out to be examples of purely unthinking, unfeeling creatures. Presumably, this is because lobsters are the only animal most philosophers have killed with their own two hands before eating. It's unpleasant to to throw a struggling creature into a pot of boiling water. One needs to be able to tell oneself that the lobster isn't really feeling it. And like obviously, like that's a, that's the kind of quintessential dark humor of of Graeber, um, written large in in this essay. But I think it's it's a good point, right? Like that in order to dehumanize other animals, and in order to like exert our sort of hierarchical um, mentality above that that humanity is somehow separate from and distinct from. Um, other non-human animals, I think it's it's really important to kind of reinforce the the very brutal and macabre like aspect of that and how that plays out, um, like either in people's diets or just in like the you know idea that we can somehow suggest to others and to ourselves that non-human animals can't feel things um, and can't feel joy and can't feel pleasure because it means that if we hurt them, then it doesn't matter because they're not human. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, that that separation of human and nature is definitely uh, playing a big part in that. And of course, uh, later on in the essay, he starts bringing up Dawkins and talking about how that is sort of starting to leak backwards into humanity now, where now it's becoming more and more 
uh, in vogue to start discussing humanity itself as mostly just a mach- uh, utility maximizing machine. 100%, which is like wild because again, like this is, it, it's, it's coming full circle, you know, cause like, like you pointed out um, earlier, right? The idea that somehow these particular, you know, the, 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 this particularly nefarious idea of hierarchy of, of, of socialization towards utilitarian ends started as a social phenomenon, started as a way to talk about like the, the behavior of, of, of human beings and then has now circled back in order to try and reinforce that, right? We've gone from it being a sort of sociological thing to a biological thing, now back to it being a sociological thing. It's like, it's like okay, well, let's try this one thing, and then it didn't work. And then they're like, okay, well, we're going to try this other thing. That didn't work. So let's go back to the thing we tried again, and maybe we can fool people this time around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and using the, uh, the sort of like bioessentialist argument about well, this is how nature does it, so then, therefore, of course, this is how humans are going to do it. But yeah, I guess, like, one of the things that I wanted to touch on, too, and and we've kind of been circling around it, but I want to just, like, kind of hone in on it for a second, is, like, the idea that Graeber is challenging in so many ways is this very um, kind of anthropocentric view of of nature, right? That, That human beings are somehow distinct from and separate from nature, that we are hierarchically placed above nature and that nature is within our dominion, right? Um, even if we reject the sort of um, puritanical, Christianized version of that, that like God gave nature to, to human beings to um, lord over, even if we reject that particular thing, I think that mentality is still latent in so much of, of Western science. Um, this idea that humanity's rational brain has somehow set us apart uh, from other non-human animals. And I think in, in, in so many ways, um, what, this, uh, what this essay serves to do is be an urgent invective, um, much in the same way as uh, Kropotkin's Mutual Aid, much in the way uh, of, of, of Bookchin's The Ecology of Freedom, uh, to, to try and intervene in that conversation and suggest that, no, what we need more than anything, right, uh, is to shatter this this very myopic view of humanity as somehow distinct from the rest of nature uh, and begin to instead create a much more holistic paradigm in which human beings are are necessarily constituted as part of a much larger matrix of, of ecocentrism or biocentrism or whatever what you might want to call it, in which hierarchy is uh, is abolished and there is instead a sort of more circular give-and-take um, sphere of relationships, um, to use the Foucauldian paradigm, rather than this strict um, linear hierarchy in which humanity is above everything else. And I think that this this essay is really in that same spirit, um, and it, it is very much in conversation, if not explicitly when it is with um, Kropotkin, then at least implicitly when it is with Bookchin. Would you all agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think maybe the part of what you're talking about here is uh, when he's talking about the uh, view that that human beings are obviously conscious, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to get around that as a human being. Um, but that lower animals and, uh, you know, even other, uh, biological constituents are, are not conscious. And he talks about the two views being emergentism, uh, and panpsychism. And this emergentism view is sort of what he's critiquing. And and this is what I think you were getting at Pearson, this idea that all 
all of nature is is basically utility maximizing robots all the way until you get up the quote unquote ladder to humanity where there's suddenly a qualitative shift and we become conscious and uh it's like there's the severing line between humanity and nature and this is um as opposed to the panpsychism view which holds more of like a continuity where uh you know we assume that not just animals but uh even things like cells and atoms have some degree of um what bookchin would call freedom like the ability to make choices or um even just uh the, the way bookchin talks about it in in the ecology of freedom is that there's sort of a gradient from the attraction of two carbon molecules to one another to all the way you know through nature to uh human humanity's uh social consciousness basically and yeah i i think uh I find myself obviously much more enamored by that that second view where there's a a sort of continuity um through all of nature rather than this uh you know sort of unexplainable sharp break where all of a sudden human beings are are different from the rest of nature as the only conscious beings. It's a very convenient sharp break too. You know what I mean? Like it's like that's mighty conspicuous that you would break it off right there. Like it's just so yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's so myopic. <laughs> uh, it, it, it has to be incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, it's it's frustrating too because I think um, you know even on the first pass of this essay, I feel like this ideology right of of consciousness being some kind of um, unique human, uh, you know, unique human manifestation um, was so deeply instilled in my head that when I first read this, like five or so years ago, when I first stumbled across it on the internet, I was like, yeah, you know, like that's that's cool, but that sounds like some weird like mysticism shit. But the more that you sit with it, right, the more like you really digest it and think about it and meditate on it, it makes a lot of sense. And and I think that. Nate, you, you touched on the exact right word, which is this uh, idea of continuity, right? That like there is a through line of, of consciousness that exists um, as w uh, if, if we're going to try to define consciousness, which is maybe we could, something we should try to do um, at some point during this conversation, uh, which is maybe an impossible task, probably is, but we can at least uh, venture a stab at it. But if, if we're to, you know, accept that there is some possibility for even down to the molecular level, to, to the, the very quarks that comprise everything, if we're to somehow accept, right, that some way or somehow there is some variation, some very small variation to the type of consciousness, to the type of freedom, to the type of um, joy and pleasure uh, that comes from play and from self-expression that we experience as human beings in this sort of evolved state, then that could that could be a through line that carries throughout all of evolution, right? Very very clearly, if we think about it, especially on the the scale of millions upon millions upon millions of years of evolution, if we look at the ways in which humans evolved from simple cell life forms to more complicated to increasingly more complicated and more complicated um, beings, it makes a whole fucking lot of sense. Um, and 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 that doesn't necessarily mean 
that it, it that is 100% accurate, right? I think like this idea of panpsychism is very much still, still like a, a form of like a frontier of science, right? It's a, it's a new way of thinking about, um, you know, the, 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 the multiple disciplines that inform our scientific progress and our scientific understanding. But I think it's an incredibly enriching one and a really invigorating one, and it makes more sense the more that you sit with it. And so if like me, you're listening to this and you're like, panpsychism that sounds like some uh mystic new age uh sort of thing then i would challenge you to like just really meditate on on it for a second and think about like how evolution plays out throughout um the 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 course of of not just human history but far beyond human history for all of our planet's history how has evolution actually played out and i think that uh when you look at that that global or, or that macro scale rather it's a it's an idea that I think has a lot more purchase than if we just think about um, human society, right? Because human society, we've existed for like the blink of an eye uh, in in the history of the cosmos, um, and so it's the height of hubris to somehow insist that um, you know that is all there is, or that we are somehow the center or the most um, a like the most evol- highly evolved version of the universe uh, looking at itself, right? Like the most highly evolved version of the universe developing its own consciousness, and that we cut off all else of the rest of, of um, the world um, and the rest of the universe and somehow um, attribute all of that to ourselves. It's, it's so vain to, to suggest that. Um, and so it's, it's such a, a liberatory way of thinking about how expansive right, our capacity is for, um, for enjoyment and for, for, for self-direction and for um, self-actualization. Does that make sense? Am I, or am I just like uh, wrapped up in, in Graeber's like lovely prose? No, I, I think that does make sense. And I think one of the major problems is, right, like where we as humans have consciousness, but only of ourselves. We are pretty sure that a lot of other creatures don't have consciousness or at least aren't aware maybe of themselves or other people. It's, it's really hard to know. I don't know enough about animals, but um, so it feels a bit like, well, geez, it feels like maybe I'm the most important person in the whole universe, but we have other people that can tell us, no, I'm alive too. And they're like, Oh, okay. But the cats can't tell us like they actually think they're the most important creature in the universe. And so, like, we're just like, well, then we don't need to consider them. I don't know if you've met any cats, Tom, but uh, every cat I've ever met has never, never shied away from telling me that he or she is the very center of the entire universe. That's true. That's true. But I mean, like, they can't uh, exert their will, I guess, over me, uh, except for to annoy me most of the time. I guess (laughs) they can hurt me. But, uh... Uh, like, I don't know, you know man. So I've heard I... stories about cats that have like <laughs> chewed out, like you know, like uh, the, the the cat ladies who who accrue That's like true. dozens and dozens of cats after they die and fall like collapse and their corpses on the ground. Their cats feed upon their bodies and engorge themselves. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking like, um, you know, it's it's I can understand where I and everyone else basically would get the idea that like you know, well, humans are obviously like a cut above. And for some reason, we should just exploit that to the fullest, fullest extent. Um, I, I think that that's, like you were saying, just the wrong way to look at it. And, uh, you know, we, we may be able to do a lot more things than other animals, but it doesn't really mean we aren't animals that need to cohabit with everything else on this planet. And so, like, I was just thinking about, like, you know, well, what if there were aliens 
and they came down to Earth, and they're more evolved than us somehow. Maybe even like uh, you know, like specifically like they can read minds or something. Well, should they just kill us? Like, is that acceptable behavior? Because we have kind of laid out this pattern of like, well, if I can kill you, <laughs> then I win. Might makes right. Right, right, right exactly. And um, and so I, I think like if you start to consider that, it's like, oh no, 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 no. Like the aliens should be friends with us, and we should <laughs> work together to like live in harmony. Like obviously, right? You would say that. I think one uh, would hope. There are a lot of a lot of uh, weird people, I guess, that might say differently. Yeah, there's a lot of misanthropes out there for sure. <laughs> so, what? How do we define consciousness then? Like, if we're going to like you know kind of kind of keep spinning around this particular point, right? Because in in some ways, like I have, I because I was preparing for this this conversation, I have like an interesting definition that i might venture and hazard a guess that that might please y'all but maybe that's only because it's an ideologically based one but like um i'm curious like how how do we define consciousness is it is it a soul is it your mind is it something else something beyond is it is it simply nothing less and nothing more than chemicals in your brain making particularly complex um you know neurochemistry possible like how how do we define consciousness because i feel like that's really what this essay is kind of getting at um in so many ways uh is, is is what is consciousness and how do we how do we define it how do we understand it if we're not going to um, hoard it as something that is unique solely to human beings, uh, how then do we approach this this thorny, onerous subject of consciousness? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not an easy problem. Um, you know, there's like a whole branch of philosophy called philosophy of mind that is asking this question. Um, <laughs> uh, like Daniel Dennett, one of the philosophers that Graeber uh, uh, cites in here, um, is, is a part of that whole school. Um, and, and the answer that I have come across most often in my reading that seems to be the most accepted is that to be conscious is like for there to be, I mean, how do I say this so that it sounds like it makes sense? <laughs> uh, it, it, there has to be something that it's like to be you. Like a, like a conscious recognition of the self? Yeah, it, there has to be like a subjective perspective. I like that rhyme. Um, like, uh, the like the essay that uh, sort of established this general idea is called "What's It Like to Be a Bat," and so like the idea is that there's some sort of like experience of being a bat, and that's what what consciousness is. Um, and of course, like we uh, accept that there's something there's something there, there is something that it's like to be me, right? Like whatever this uh, this this subjective experience of nateness is is my consciousness. And so, like, yeah, the the question is, like, you know, not to use, like, a, a hierarchical terminology, but how far down does that go? Uh, like, is there something that it's like to be an atom? Is there some, or is an atom just a machine that has no awareness of its own, like, subjective place in the world? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, and that sounds, uh, reminds me of the little, um, the, the Talos story that Graeber talks about in the near the end about um there's like uh well i guess i'll just read it oh i will not be able to say these names correctly i bet zongzi and huzi were strolling on a bridge over the river how when the former observes see how the minnows dart between the rocks such as the happiness of fishes you not being a fish said huzi who how can you possibly know what makes fish happy 
And you not being I, said Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi? How can you? I am so bad with names. I know I'm just How can you know that I don't know what makes fish happy? If I not being you cannot know what you know, replied Guzi, does it not follow from that very fact that you not being a fish cannot know what makes fish happy? Let us go back to your original question. You asked me how I knew what makes fish happy. The very fact, the very fact you asked shows that you knew I knew, as I did know from my own feelings on this bridge. And <laughs> I don't think that's going to... When I was reading this, it was confusing. To, when I was reading it myself, I think reading it on the podcast was a mistake. It's going to be very confusing. I recommend <laughs> you go read that part. <laughs> but um, it's just, it's a very interesting story about, like, how do you know what other people know and what they experience and, like, what you even experience and uh that really really made me think <laughs> but yeah. um yeah like this idea of being a fish or being a bat or being an atom uh like I, I you know my my gut check instinct would be like well atoms don't have minds so they cannot experience anything <laughs> like that's that's like where i feel like i want to jump to but it's kind of like well how do you know that though like you don't know except for what you know in your own mind and what you can prove, I guess, through measuring things and testing things. But we can't really measure a lot of that stuff. Like we measure brain activity, but we can't really measure like, I don't know, whatever it is that makes us individually ourselves. Yeah, we can't measure consciousness for sure. And, you know, even what you're saying about assuming that uh, that consciousness requires a brain, right? I mean, um, we know we have brains and we're conscious, so we sort of come to that conclusion. But, uh, of course, we can't tell you what part of the brain or what the brain is doing that makes us conscious. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's all assumptions all the way down. Um, yeah. But, yeah, Pearson, I'd like to hear what uh, what your definition of consciousness was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's very uh, tenuous. Uh, so, and and I don't, I, I certainly won't pretend that I have solved what philosophers of the mind have spent fucking centuries debating. Um, but I think that there is something to be said for like the notion that um, consciousness comes down in some way, shape, or form to a recognition of one's own free ability to, to make choices, right? Um, and that, like, yeah, subjectivity is a part of that, but, like, if you can recognize that you have the choice to do something or to not do something, um, to play or to not play, to go to work or not go to work, uh, for the electron to move or to not move, then it's possible, arguably, again, arguably, that you have manifested some form of consciousness, right? Because you have... Have 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 made some kind of subjective decision, right? If so, if if consciousness is subjectivity, right? These these two terms and ideas are very very closely related, right? Then that means that you have the freedom to make two different choices, at least two, maybe more different choices, but at least two different choices, right? And so that subjectivity, I would then contend, could possibly form the basis for consciousness and thus would then inform the the basis for all of our interactions on from the molecular level up to our a, a social level and that not only that but it would also imply that the basis of consciousness is freedom which is where we get into the sort of ideological like uh you know 
<laughs> kind of territory of, of well, where of course you think that freedom is uh, is, is the thing that is what forms consciousness. You're a fucking anarchist. Yeah, um, something about that just appeals to me. <laughs> yeah, we sh- and sure, and and I think we should always be um, reticent of and skeptical of things that are neat and tidy arguments that make us feel good. Um, but I think that there is something to it because, like, again, if Right, if we're recognizing that that subjectivity is is necessarily a part of consciousness, then that means whenever a choice is made to do something, or even even if it's the the most mundane choice of to do something or to not to act or to not act, then a choice is made. And so, in some way, shape, or form, that thing that is that is making that choice or not making that choice is exhibiting some form of subjectivity, and by extension arguably exhibiting some form of consciousness, which again, I think is a tenuous and difficult argument. And I'd be more than happy if listeners like disagree or, or, or hear what they think of it or hear what y'all think of it. But it's, it's a, it's a one that I've kind of been sitting with ever since we decided to sit down and do this episode that is very appealing to me because ideologically, but also I think one that makes some degree of sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, um, and while, like you said, of course, it's we're sort of making some assumptions and and uh, taking a view that that sort of uh, confirms what we want to hear in in certain ways. I think that part of what Graeber's point in this essay is, and we touched on this a bit earlier, but I think now we can speak about it more specifically, is that the assumption that an electron, you know, jumps from one place or to another, um, you know, which we can't predict, we can't predict where exactly an electron is going to jump to. Like, that's a physical fact. So we can either look at that as the electron is making a choice, or we can look at that as the electron is just blindly following some rule of nature, uh, like a robot. And the point being is that we have equal ground to assume either of those right, things. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here, here's where I had a lot of trouble with this article, is like, I'm not a scientist, and I don't know a lot about how electrons work since high school which has been a long time and and apparently i didn't even understand electrons very well then or i think we didn't or something like i did a quick look and i've always thought of them as you know they're on little tracks that spin around or something and i guess they're like just an electron is like a cloud around it's it's confusing to me Um, yeah it's like a cloud of probability or something i I don't understand it either i just know the words (laughs) yeah so i was trying i was trying to look up because uh like you know is this true that electrons don't behave predictably under different circumstances. And um, the only, I mean, I did a very quick look. It wasn't like I'm reading huge textbooks. I just did a quick search on the internet, but it was like, basically, well, if you, you know, do it this way, they'll jump to a higher plane. But like, if you do it this way, they'll jump to a lower plane, but it sounded kind of predictable in that sense. And this is my biggest beef with this, uh, this article is just that like, there are no sources here that I can look up what he's saying is, is empirically true. Um, and usually Graver has like so many sources and I really love it because when I read his books, it's just like, you know, I can go to the, I usually have to flip back and forth between the, the, the sources and, and the thing I'm reading because he has a lot of extra information about whatever he's saying. He just obviously knows his stuff. And so that kind of frustrated me. Um, but maybe it's just because I'm uh, not, not smart or not knowledgeable would be the way to put it, I guess. Yeah, um, just to to quote the the relevant part of the article, um, which, as you said, is not cited, but uh, it it does at least jive with my general understanding of of physics and and quantum physics. Um, He says, quote, 
The standard answer is that we have known since Heisenberg that the movements of atomic particles are not predetermined. Quantum physics can predict to which positions electrons, for instance, will tend to jump in aggregate in a given situation, but it is impossible to predict which way any particular electron will jump in any particular instance. Okay, yeah, and, and, um, and hearing I, that again, it's a little less, uh, you know, it sounds more reasonable than I even remember hearing it when I was reading it. So it sounds more like, well, that, that does sound like what I think of with electrons. Absolutely. And, and getting, you know, and, and again, we can either assume that they're doing that, that represents some sort of choice, some sort of freedom that is inherent in being an electron. Uh, or we can assume that that is just, you know, some sort of like mathematical background law of nature that these robots are blindly following. Um, and with equal grounding for either, the choice sort of becomes which one of those assumptions about nature is going to lead to a better world for us. You know what I mean? And moreover, I think that the fact that there is a choice supports one particular part of the argument. You know what I mean? Like, the fa- <laughs> yeah, no, like, like, like that is, I think, part of it is that like the fact that there is a choice means that there is uh, – and I think that's why, you know – uh, Graeber chooses to close his essay with that little anecdote about uh, Zhuangzi and and Huzai, because or, or yeah, I, again we're probably butchering these people's names. Uh, sorry, that's that, that that I have to plead ignorance. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's why he closes it with it is because the whole point is that Zhuangzi loses, but like he's happy and he wrote it down because of the fact that it was in a pleasure to engage in debate, right? It was a pleasure to have a earnest, thoughtful conversation with his pal, just like we're having right now. And I think that that's the entire point that Graeber is really trying to get at here, which is that, you know, the, 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 the freedom to choose is itself uh, a, an act of joy and is itself a form of consciousness expressing itself. And we can see that if we can see that in human beings um, and if we can see that in other non-human animals, right? Like like the inchworm uh, inching itself along, like the fishes swimming um, underneath the bridge of, of Swangzi and Huzi, then I think it stands to reason that we can begin to think about consciousness in a very different way. And if we think about freedom and subjectivity as the underpinnings for consciousness, then it allows us to, to not only recognize our, our own agency and our own um, autonomy within the space of, 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 of the social like sphere, but it also allows us to have a, a greater degree of solidarity with non-human animals and with uh, all of nature because it, we can begin to recognize that consciousness is not something that is hoarded only for human beings, but could potentially be this thing that is shared all throughout the complex interconnected matrix that, that comprises nature. Yeah, and I, I also um, recognize, like, I was zooming in a little bit too much on, like, you know, from the uh, the point of the of this the article or the the essay or whatever. But um, uh, it is like a huge through line in this is like this question of like, how do electrons work, and like, do we even know, and why are we ascribing, you know, a mechanical uh, act basically to things like to everything, right? That, and and I think I think that makes sense like if you're trying to understand your world around you like you want to be able to have things that are reproducible and understand why they do things 
and having electrons just do whatever <laughs> doesn't really help you understand the world. No. But um, it also does not help to then say, well, I'm going to pretend that they actually do what I think because that really helps me understand the world and makes it so I can fit it into the box. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> totally. Yeah, well said. And I think, it, it, you know, this trap that you identify uh, so accurately it, it is very much um, at – play in the social sphere right in our in our interactions um as human beings within um civilization and i and i think that nowhere is that more clear than in economics um he writes uh graber writes quote generally speaking an analysis of of animal behavior is not considered scientific unless the animal is assumed at least tacitly to be operating according to the same means and calculations that one would apply to economic transactions under this assumption an expenditure of energy must be directed towards some goal whether it be obtaining food securing territory achieving dominance or maximizing reproductive success unless one can absolutely prove that it isn't and absolute proof in such matters is one might imagine very hard to come by end quote and so i think that this is a really important uh, idea because um not only is it just offering profound implications for the idea of human subjectivity for the idea of consciousness um as a whole not just in human beings but uh, but across all of, of nature but it also suggests that um, there is a concentrated effort on the behalf of those in power uh, to continue to perpetuate their hegemonic rule over us by basing this off of what they would claim to be ostensibly irrefutable evidence about the way that, that in the entire universe works, which is a, an incredibly nefarious and dubious claim uh, and one that we should be incredibly suspect of. Um, and I think that this idea, right, that we can somehow kind of uh, apply means and ends kinds of calculations to all of human behavior uh, and, and then scale that up right to to an economy is incredibly uh dubious and ludicrous at the same time yeah absolutely and and moreover it's just no good for us right it's just causing you know untold suffering throughout the world and um and so i think you're exactly right and you know, this is sort of going a little bit beyond the essay but what what i know about graber from just having read a lot of his work is that sort of the through line of all of his work is that the world was built this way by people and could just as easily be built differently. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the nugget that we can get out of this essay is like, imagine how we might build a world differently if our ontology started with the precept that, uh, that play and fun were the point of life. The enjoyment of life for life's sake was the point of life rather than the world we've built today, um, which is based on the idea, uh, you know, as you, we're just saying of of maximalization of competition and uh and utility yeah and profit for sure like i mean like that you know the idea that like you know so much of of life even uh, in the year 2021 is still about how and what you do for a living how do you survive how do you subsist under this capitalist economic mode of production how do you survive how do you live what do you do for a living what do you do for work is the question that you get asked at dinner parties 
or at college parties or wherever you go to party, right? Is what do you do, right? It's <laughs> it's trying not to have some fun. Yeah, what exactly? I'm just trying to have some fucking fun over here. God damn it! I want to <laughs> hang out with my friends. I might be straight edge, but I'm still here for a good fucking time, y'all. Like I'm not here trying to talk about fucking work. Like, and so I think that like that's such an interesting and important little kernel that is is um, that is that is so potent in this essay um, and that it carries throughout it, which is that. Y'all, we gotta stop thinking about this this impulse towards work, and 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 I think that this is something that uh, is is true, especially uh, of of, um, of of the capitalist class, and is true of people who buy into that the sort of hegemonic ideology um, that exists within um, the United States in particular today. Um, but I also think it's true of, of of many of our comrades on on the left of this this sort of fetishization of 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 work right this this uh veneration of of the working class as somehow being um you know the 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 guiders of of some mythical capital r revolution in which we're going to supplant the ruling class and uh create a dictatorship of the proletariat and then you know use work as a as a as a tool to make luxury possible for everyone right like there's this 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 um really obscene through line in so many leftist tendencies that that seems to really worship work and i and i think that um graber really comes from the 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 sort of uh you know anti-work kind of school of thought um on the left which is like work sucks let's abolish work let's do as little work as humanly possible like if you've read his book bullshit jobs that's literally like the entire thesis of it which is like work fucking blows none of us are doing anything meaningful or important in our work except for like the few handful of people you know amount of people who are doing like really important reproductive labor so what we should do is try and 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 shrink work hours as much as humanly possible so we have the time and space and energy to actually self-actualize and the reason why that hasn't happened despite the fact that like um even people like Keynes were saying that this would happen within like decades and he was writing in like the early like 19 teens um despite the fact that uh you know even uh you know preeminent capitalists like Keynes were saying that we would shrink the the work week to 20 maybe even 15 hours a week um the reason why that hasn't happened is because the capitalists are well aware that if they ever did that with all of our free time we would overthrow their asses so fast so I think that like this idea, right, of 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 applying economic ideas about how our 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 our, our industry and our, our money and our society should work based off of fallacious, dubious claims about nature is incredibly dangerous and has done just massive incalculable harm upon the planet um, because of this this nefarious idea. Uh, yeah, a billion percent. And like we talked about, uh, we've talked a bit about, um, you know, Darwin and and I think we brought up Kropotkin and mutual aid uh, in this episode. But like our, our podcast works in theory, we did a, the first four episodes, I think, were about reading mutual aid. And that book really changed the way I looked at the world. Like, because I had never really, I just kind of accepted that like, yeah, competition's revel, the fittest makes sense. I've seen it. I've been taught about it. And I think, you know, it definitely plays a part, and that's why mutual aid is called a factor of evolution. It's not like it is exactly how the world was formed, um, but you can't discount it. Like, you cannot discount that, like, species do better when they work together, 
Uh, this is getting way off in the in the weeds from uh, what we were talking about was fun, <laughs> but uh, it just it just was making me think of like how we, you know, our 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 understanding of of how things work comes from kind of just like a few sources that people just at the top say like this is how the world works and you just kind of eat it up and say like, yeah it kind of jives with what I'm seeing, but that's kind of because we've made the world work that way. It's yeah, whole exactly. Circle. We've made the world work that way. No, that's, I think that's a very astute point. And I think it comes like right into what Graeber is arguing here. Uh, I think that like that, 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 that so, informs so much of it. Um, I can't remember now which of you said it earlier, but like the whole idea is that like the secret, you know, Graeber's whole uh, quote, you know, the secret of, of human, like human life is that we, uh, together have created the world and we could just as easily make it differently or something to that effect. I probably butchered the quote, but it's that idea, right? Um, you know, the assumption that what currently exists must necessarily exist is the acid that corrodes all visionary thinking to use Bookchin's quote, right? It's that idea that we have kind of accepted very blithely this tepid and unimaginative and um, boring monochrome version of the world because capitalist ideology has done such an excellent job of indoctrinating and brainwashing us. Um, and I think that, you know, people like Kropotkin, people like Bookchin, people like David Graeber, um, were little lighthouses in the miasmic, like fogged world, um, offering us different pathways for, for liberation, both as, as individuals and also as communities and, and, and hopefully one day, um, as as a as societies, absolutely. Yep, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> well, I was just I was surprised by this essay because uh, the title of it reminded me of something that uh, Nathan J. Robinson wrote in Current Affairs: "Animals are pointless, and we should be too." And I really liked that essay. Um, but this essay was much more about like, you know, like how can we define consciousness and why we have fun and like all these things. Whereas the animals one was like. We should just do what ducks do. <laughs> and I like that. I like that outlook as well. Where it's just like, you know, a lot of other animals don't seem to struggle and have 40-hour work weeks. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't either. Yeah, I know for sure. I, I, I think both of those are mutually compatible, you know, parts of the same conversation, 100%. Yeah, I think the link here is that um, the link between consciousness and play is, is this idea that um, to be self-conscious, like to not just be a robot following the rules of nature is to basically be able to act frivolously to to make a choice to do something just for the joy of doing it and like that is what you know that's what ultimately sort of defines consciousness and you know in the sense that uh human beings are like the most acutely conscious uh life form that we know of it's like play is sort of our uh, modus operandi it's like play is the most human behavior there could possibly be because it's just pure creativity, pure, um, I don't know, acting upon the world uh, just for the joy of being able to act upon the world as a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if and if we are going to take that, that sort of post-anthropological, or rather um, that post-anthropocentric kind of view that like, it's not just the, the thing that makes us most human, it's the thing that makes us most natural. Like, you know, like that's like, the, that's like, that is our natural state is, is existing in, in a space of play. Um, and, and I guess, you know, kind of in closing, um, it's funny before we jumped on 
uh, to talk. I was joking with y'all that I blew off working on my dissertation today to, to, to write creatively um, and spend some time like working on, on a short story instead because work sucks and writing my dissertation is hard and I didn't want to and I found joy and pleasure in writing. Um, and I just wanted to kind of like close by talking about um, how important play is as um, people who are maybe, uh, I, I don't want to say adults because I definitely don't feel like an adult. I, I, I honestly feel like a big baby like 90% of the time. And so for, <laughs> for us, the rest of us big babies, um, I think play is so fucking important. And, and if, if people listen to Coffee with Comrades, y'all know that I'm a huge fucking nerd and I love playing like tabletop role-playing games. I love video games. We've covered a bunch of that kind of stuff on the podcast before. And a lot of people in the past have been like, this is lame. Like, <laughs> this is not what I came to like a leftist podcast <laughs> for. And like, fine. Like, that's cool. Like, go, you know, you can get your... Uh, good theory digest bits uh from from works in theory podcast that's great um and 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 i'm sure they'll be happy to oblige you but i also think at the same time the play is so fucking great and it's so important and like that's when we're most free and i think that um you know again i i I feel like a broken record sometimes and i don't want to harp on this point over much but i do think it's worth reiterating that we have this this very puritanical strain of thinking on the left that seems to suggest that if you are not slavishly devoted to the capital R uh, revolution every moment of your entire fucking life, then you are somehow not a revolutionary. And that is the most um, insidious and, and silly and myopic view that I can imagine um, about revolutionary politics. Revolutionary politics should be about our self-actualization. It should be about our, our mutual emancipation. It should be about our ability to uh, self-direct and to, to, to voluntarily associate. And it should be about our ability to sit around on the front porch uh, watching fucking worms throwing themselves from one leaf to another. Um, that's what I want out of out of a fucking revolution. I want to be able to sit around uh, a table and roll dice and tell stories with my friends, and I want to write stories, and I want to, like, run around and hang out with my partner and drink lots and lots and lots and lots of coffee. That's what I want out of the revolution, um, and I think that's what, like, revolutionary like action looks like in so many ways is, is the spontaneous, spontaneous overflow of joy. And, and so I got, I guess I say all that because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what is it that causes your spontaneous overflow of joy, Nate and Tom, like what is it that invigorates that in you um, and, and causes your, your, your face to light up and for you to feel um, jubilee and euphoria? No, that's a great question. I wasn't really expecting that. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm like you. I love playing, uh, you know, role-playing games, video games. Um, I I do a lot out in nature, um, whether I'm gardening or uh, uh, even this weekend I'm going to go camping. Um, and I just, I like to just be out seeing things grow and seeing the, the, the non-human world. I don't know how to say this, just being there and remembering that like even when I'm caught up in my life and, and caught up in my job or whatever it is I have to do that, that out there somewhere that bird is, is still flying around just, you know, for the joy of it. And those trees are still, you know, growing on the side of that mountain for no reason, just because they're trees and that's what trees do. And that, that always brings me joy. That always brings me a lot of, of comfort. Fuck yeah. I love that. What about you, Tom? 
Uh, yeah, similar, I, I guess. Uh, I, I actually am pretty bad about getting out into nature, but similar to the role-playing game stuff. And uh, I think D&D, when I found out how to play it, when I got into D&D group stuff, it was just like really made me happy. Like playing, playing D&D, especially DMing and stuff, is very fun. Um, but also I think uh, just creating things makes me really happy. Um, I was thinking about... So I'm a programmer and I like programming, but I hate working. I hate doing it as a job. But when I'm programming, it's fun because I'm creating something. And like, if I don't have a lot of limitations on that thing, it's a lot of fun. Like it just feels like, you know, I'm making a thing that shows up that, that does something. Um, so like creation, I guess, which I think, I think a lot of play falls under that with like, you know, whenever you write something, whenever you, uh, DM or as a player at a table or something like you're creating a story. You're like doing, doing creation. I think that's a really big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, listen, if we're gonna, if we're gonna create a better world, we got to learn how to world build. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> For sure. Um, awesome. Well, this has been so much fun, y'all. I'm really glad that we could sit down and, and have this conversation. Um, it's been really cool getting to talk with y'all and, I, I've, I had a lot of fun reading and researching and preparing for this conversation and going in through and listening to um, y'all's great, great, great series on, on Kropotkin's Mutual Aid. I highly recommend it um, if folks are listening to this in the Coffee with Comrades feed and haven't checked out Works in Theory podcast before. That's a good place to start. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess before we part ways, um, could y'all let listeners know where to go in order to um, find your podcast to follow y'all on social media and support your work. And then maybe I can do the same for coffee with comrades. Uh, yeah. Um, so you can find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at works and theory podcast uh, on Twitter. We're at works theory pod. Um, and you can also go just, uh, you know, Google search works and theory podcast. And we'll be one of the uh, first things that pops up. You can find us on all of the, all of the, um, you know, podcast apps, all of that stuff. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, same with Coffee with Comrades. We're on Twitter and Instagram. It's Coffee with Comrades on Instagram, and it's Coffee W Comrades on Twitter. You can follow us there. Uh, we have a Patreon, uh, Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Coffee with Comrades. And then, um, yeah, I mean, we are available wherever you get your favorite lefty propaganda. So um, if you listen to podcasts and radio shows, you should be able to find Coffee with Comrades with no issue. Um, yeah, this has been real, y'all. I'm, I'm really glad that... Um, y'all are part of the Channel Zero Network now. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we can um, collaborate and do this fun episode. Uh, and, you know, pour one out for David Graber. Rest in power to a fucking real one. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us to have this conversation. And um, can't yeah, recommend David but, Graber's works enough. Yeah, definitely. Uh, debt is big, but it's debt, debt the first 5,000 years is a really big book, but it's really, really good. It just feels like every page is brimming with crazy, interesting things you've never considered. So it's also fucking hilarious. Like dead is so funny. It's so funny. Yeah. Right from the beginning when, when somebody's asking him like, well, surely people must pay their debts. And he's just like, surely they must like, <laughs> yeah. Like, like <laughs> according to whom <laughs> it's great. It's great. I love it. I love it so much. Um, cool. Y'all. Well, this has been real solidarity forever. Okay. Yeah. Right back at you. And that about does it for this week's episode of Coffee with Comrades. This is an entirely DIY show run by workers for workers. 
If you like what you hear, you can follow us on Twitter at CoffeeWComrades and Instagram at CoffeeWithComrades. Check out our website, www.coffeewithcomrades.com, and sign up to support our work with a monthly contribution by going to www.patreon.com forward slash coffeewithcomrades. You can find Coffee with Comrades on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you go to get your anti-capitalist propaganda. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you're there smashing that subscribe button, be sure to rate and review the show as well to help us increase our reach. If you have feedback, criticism, or you'd just like to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at coffeewithcomrades at gmail.com. Until next time, stay wild out there, comrades.
Sonntag.